Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. The level at which they would frankly pummel women emotionally heavy manual labor etc etc if somebody became pregnant Mm. until they reached their breaking point and agreed to terminate and and were forced to do so we had a lawsuit where and that was one of the causes of action um was that i was forced to do that twice um oh no and in that lawsuit, I made a list of every, of every single woman that I personally knew had been forced to do that. Mm-hmm. And my list was 70 women long. Some of those had, had, had been forced to do it up to six times. No. Oh, my gosh. That's awful. It is. Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions or organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. As always, if you're only listening and you want to see our faces, you can go to my YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness, where you can like, join in on the conversation, lead some, leave some words of encouragement for our guests who are coming on and bravely telling their stories. And of course, subscribe, <laughs> become a supporter and an advocate. Um, so today's guest, you have seen her on once before. This is a part two episode. However, you do not need to go watch the first one before this. You can watch them in any order, but it will give a little bit more context as to her early childhood days within Scientology. So this guest is someone who has their own YouTube channel with their husband called Blown for Good. And she is also the president of the Aftermath Foundation, which helps people who are trying to escape Scientology get back on their feet. So thanks so much for joining us again, Claire Headley. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me back. Absolutely. And the first episode went so well. We recorded it yesterday and we had so much to talk about. We went into your childhood, what it was like being raised in Scientology. I mean, you were in these special schools. You didn't have a whole lot of time with your your mother. And now we're going to be talking about your teen life on and how you kind of rose to the ranks of Scientology and then what made you finally leave. Yes, sounds good. Yeah. So where we left off is you were around 13, 14, I believe. And I guess what I'm wondering the most is what it was like as a teenager being raised within these confines of the, I guess you could call it religious confines, even though they don't technically call themselves a religion, but they are for tax reasons. It's kind of messy, but, <laughs> but yeah, what it was, what it was <laughs> exactly. Like it's a, uh, the, the narrative, <laughs> the narrative shifted dramatically. Yeah. No, absolutely. I really had no interest as a child in being a Scientologist. You know, I just, I I didn't understand that I needed help. So I was like, why do I need to do counseling? For example, Mm -hmm. I'm perfectly fine. I'm happy. I don't need this. And my mom just kept pushing, pushing, pushing and insisting that the only reason I didn't know that I needed it is because, you know, I needed to be enlightened and I needed to, uh, you know, study the the directives and the policies from L. Ron Hubbard. And this was, you know, 
the way. <laughs> At somewhere though, in, in my teenage years, I had, I had some road bumps. And unfortunately, those kind of ended up pushing me very deep into mm. Scientology. And I just kind of embraced it as a, well, the world out, out there is a bad place. There's bad people. So I'm going to accept my fate except the path of least resistance, as it were. I do think that I was driven by wanting acceptance and approval from my parents, mm. uh, which cooperation with Scientology was a requirement for that. And um, anyway, so I just kind of thought, well, I'll give it give it a shot and go all in. And so I started on, like I we were talking about doing the counselor training and the, um, you know, the just started moving up the the ranks in terms of my training levels all along though so i we we talked about how my mother was in the sea organization until i was age 10 i'd already signed a billion year contract at age 7 then i signed another one when i was uh 12 and then another one when i was 14 wow and they i, I was just constantly being uh heavily pressured to join the C organization. And as a teenager, I did not know how to get out from under that pressure. It was very, very difficult. It was very stressful. It was, you know, I just felt like I was a bad person if I wasn't going to be joining the C organization. And eventually I caved and I, I was like, okay, I'm going to join the C organization now myself. And th by this time, I was 16 years old in Los Angeles. So it was July 1991. And when I told my mother, uh, even though she's a Scientologist, she was crying and upset. And because she her herself had been in the C organization, she knew full well that if anything went sideways and I didn't end up making it in the C organization or if I tried to escape or, you know, on and on and on, then that would potentially destroy our relationship. And I think that's right. what she was most scared of looking back on it, which ironically, she was right. Mom, you were right. I shouldn't have joined this organization. <laughs> so quick question for you. Why did you have to sign so many contracts if it's for a billion years? Is it a different contract as you age up? No, it's the same contract. It's just that recruiters, uh, I think they actually get a statistic, like a, a number on their graph for, for a number of CR contracts signed. So uh, because it was different recruiters, each one of those recruiters wanted me to sign a contract with them. Got it. <laughs> so it was okay. really just a... <laughs> A numbers thing. Yeah, just for show. And I want to add some context here to how serious this is, like your mom's concern. So for people who aren't aware, if Claire were to leave, well, she did, she becomes seen as a suppressive person. And anyone who is still in the good graces of Scientology has to disconnect from her. They don't really have a choice. And so that's why it's such a serious decision. Yes, absolutely. Um, and yeah, that is what ended up happening in the end. Um, it's, it's ironic for me looking back on it that in the 30 years I spent in Scientology, in my mind, I always thought, well, if I were ordered to disconnect from my mom or my sister or a family member, I would never do it. I would not comply. And I really believed that. 
though I was never ordered to, and I was never in that position, um, nonetheless, you know, the little voice in the back of my head who I had locked up in the closet back there, not to be listened to was, was not in agreement with disconnection at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so it's just kind of ironic that, you know, it ended up being, I never did disconnect from my family. They disconnected from me. <laughs> right. And that must have been so hard for you because, like you said, you weren't okay with that practice. And now it's being forced on you from the other direction. Yeah. Yeah. What's most destructive about disconnection? Obviously, number one, destroying family bonds, mm -hmm. requiring someone to have no contact with their family. I mean, that's not, that's not even applied to prisoners in prison. You know, they still have contact with their families. Yeah. It's just a very destructive, absolute, um, policy in Scientology that is dangerous because it isolates you from the people who care about you most. And then Scientology on top of that lies about it and says, oh, well, disconnection is a choice. No, it's not a choice at all. Any Scientologist knows it's not a choice. If you're told to disconnect, you follow the order. It's an order and you do it or there's consequences, just like anything in Scientology. Mm. And then also Scientology has even gone so far as to lie about it, say, oh, disconnection doesn't exist. And that <laughs> that was a lie that was you know, on national television that probably resulted in half of Scientology leaving Scientology. Really? Yeah, they knew it was a lie. It was like, <laughs> you can't lie about things like that. Just be honest and be open and, you know, state what you believe and state what you practice. That's um, a big difference in Scientology than other religions is they don't state what they believe. They don't, they're not open. You have to move up the levels to learn to the upper... Out confidential. Yeah, exactly. It's a business model. They mm -hmm. have a price list and you pay for um, counseling and courses as you go. It's it's a business. Yeah, there was something similar that happened with Mormonism where the prophet went on a very popular TV show. I don't remember the name of it now, but he was asked very point blank a lot of questions and the prophet lied on TV and everyone was like, I can't believe he did that because we're taught to be honest in our fellow dealings with man and all of the things. And the prophet basically just said later on, like, people don't need to know all of the ins and outs and they just want to understand. And all of us were like, wait a second. Yeah. So they do that now, too. Um, there's a <clears throat> like a Q&A thing on their website for people who are looking to join the church. And it has all of the hot button topics like... Um, do Mormons believe they get their own planet after they die? Do you believe in dinosaurs? And they straight up lie. And they're like, we've never taught that, that you get your own planet. And we're like, that's not true. Like, I was taught that. My mom was taught that. All of us are sitting there like, you. we just learned that in Sunday school. You can't just straight up say on your website that that's not true because you, you know it sounds crazy. And you know that investigating members will look at it and say, oh, no, this is too much for me. And so that's what's so funny about it is anytime there's information that sounds off, just from like a regular critical standpoint, they will gaslight their members or they will lie about it until you get in further to where you can't leave anymore. You, you're in too deep. Yes. <laughs> yes. Completely. And to me, uh, you know, just be honest. Don't, it's not a, it, 
believe whatever you want to believe. Hey, there's a lot of people that have crazy, crazy beliefs out there. You know what? I have, I take no issue with that. Yeah. But don't lure innocent people in and lie. Yeah. Don't, don't like present a false picture of, oh, we support families and we support unconditional love and all these things that are 100% false. Don't do that. It's not, that's not, that's not human. Right. And another thing I wanted people to understand about joining the Sea Org, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, once you join, the classes become free, but it's still racking up this sort of debt. So if you were to leave, they could send you a bill. And that's another reason people are terrified to leave, because they don't have thousands and thousands of dollars to pay this bill back. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. So it so when you join the Sea Organization, essentially, you have layered in many layers of leverage and control that keep you in. And one of those, yes, you're absolutely right, that um, you are required to um, study 12 and a half hours a week as a, C- as a member of the C organization to continue doing um, training for your job and to do counseling in Scientology. Like you're, you're required to continue your advancement in terms of your knowledge of Scientology both from a job specific training standpoint, but also going up the bridge to total freedom, you know, to the levels of clear and the upper operating Thetan levels and counseling training and, you know, they call it auditor training. So yes, every um, course that you do as a member of the C organization, you sign essentially a, an invoice that says uh, there's no charge, but but it's this cost. So if you ever leave, you're going to be required to pay that back. I can't remember what they call it. There's some term that they use for it, but it's, you know, they're, they're still documenting. They're still making you sign that. Yes, I'm, I'm responsible for this. Hubbard has a policy called freeloaders. So he says, Oh, you can't let members of the C organization do anything for free because then they'll just turn around and leave. Um, and they were, will have been freeloading. Wow. Getting a free ride, basically. You know, I have a freeloader bill that's $96,000. <gasps> so <laughs> oh my because gosh. I, because I'd gotten up to the upper levels, Mark's was, I think, 68,000. So between the two of us, you know, in in rounding up, if we ever wanted to speak to our families again, just one of the steps we'd have to do would would include paying $160,000 to Scientology. <laughs> wow. Can't make that up. <laughs> that is insane. I think what's crazy about all of this, though, is that he calls it a freeloader bill. But when you join the Sea Org, you are literally doing free labor. So- yes. I mean, you get paid what, like $25 a week? Uh, $46 a week for, you know, if, if we were lucky, pay, pay would often get cut from the financial planning. So it wasn't a guarantee you would always get paid. Um, but if we did get paid, it was supposed to be $46 a week. We're working seven days a week. Uh, no, no vacations, no holidays, no days off unless you have special approval to do so, which was very, very rare. Um, like in the 14 years I worked at the headquarters, I took three leaves of absence. One of them was three days to get married. Oh. And Another one was to visit my family for four days over Christmas. And then the other one was to sp- spend like 
four days with my grandma in Los Angeles. And even that was super, super painful. You have to get interrogated. You have to get approval from like six people to leave. You have to figure out who's going to do your work while you're gone. I mean, layer upon layer. Jeez. I would work anywhere from 16 hours a day to often staying up all night, you know, Mm. or get one to two hours of sleep. Uh, For many years, that's kind of what I existed on was barely any sleep to the point that I had anyway, we'll get we'll get to that. But it's mind numbing and not a good, not a good work environment. How are you able to support yourself? Because at this point, are you still 14 and you're dropped in LA and you're making no money? Do they house you? Do they feed you? How are you able to survive on this? So I was 16 okay. when I joined the C organization. Yeah. When you're a member of the C organization, they provide uniform, lodging, and food. Okay. Um, so really the $46 a week is supposed to just be for shampoo or basic supplies above and beyond. So it's not intended as a living wage because mm-hmm. they are paying for your costs, basically. Um, but nonetheless, when I first started in the C organization, I was in a, a dormitory in the big blue buildings, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on L. Ron Hubbard Way that um, everybody, most people in LA know what those are. So I was in a dormitory in there with like maybe 20 other women, you know, it was like three bunk beds stacked high. And that's where I lived while I was doing the indoctrination program. They call it the EPF, the States Project Force. And it's, um, it's essentially heavy manual labor while you're also, um, studying L. Ron Hubbard policies on the C organization for five hours a day. And by the end of that, you're supposed to be programmed to be able to confront anything, do anything, do any job that's asked of you, and just get on with it, basically. No, don't ask any questions. You now know the basic ground rules for being a member of the C organization. And at the end of that program, once you've completed all the requirements, they put you through what's called a fitness board where they review and make sure you have met their requirements and that you're qualified now to go on and be a member of the C organization. Okay. So you're a teenager and you're expected to do all of these things. And you said you had recently had some life events that had caused you to sort of double down on your beliefs. So you're in it. What's going through your mind while you're in these dorms and you're working so hard? Is it exciting to you or are you starting to feel stifled? How do you feel? Yeah, um, I was absolutely feeling stifled, but also feeling trapped. So, you know, I don't know. I think from being born into Scientology, I very quickly kind of adjusted to, well, you know, it is what it is, make the best of it, kind of do what you got to do to survive was very much already strongly built into my mentality. Nonetheless, I remember a few times calling my mom from the payphone and just crying and being like, I, I just want to come home. And mm. she's like, no, you could do this. You've got this. And I was like, I don't got this. Yeah. <laughs> but I knew, I knew there were going to be some pretty harsh consequences if I backed out. So I just didn't feel that I had that as a realistic option. And of course, I didn't want to let my parents down. I didn't want to, you know, be cut off from my friends and have to pay a freeloader bill. And, you know, it's really like, 
within that world, it would be a huge black mark that I would never, I didn't think I would ever recover from it. Mm-hmm. Even had I just left and stayed in Scientology, you know, right. it would have it been not good. Yeah. So I just kind of dove in head first and tried to push through. And I obviously did push through. Just within like two or three months, I was approached to move up to the headquarters. So Scientology has their headquarters in Gilman Hot Springs, California. It's a 500-acre secure compound in the middle of nowhere. Is that the castle one? Yes. I've been to that. Oh, you have? (laughs) I have. I was an actor in a few pieces way before I knew what Scientology was. And once I found out through the Aftermath show, I was like, never again will I ever act in one of those videos. What? Yeah. What? <laughs> what What role did you play? One of them, I think I was actually playing L. Ron Hubbard's mother as he was like a toddler. And then... Another one, I was yelling at my boss for something and yelling I quit. And then another one, I was looking in the mirror and thinking to myself, I'm always sick when it rains because my mom used to say that to me. And then my daughter would end up saying that to herself. We did an episode with Mitch Brisker and we haven't released it yet because we were waiting for the Scientology set to put it out. But yeah, I was talking to him about how it was such an efficient set. I was so shocked at how well everything went. I mean, I've been on massive movie sets and TV shows since living here and it was so efficient. So anyways, I've been to the castle. (laughs) That's crazy. What year was that or what time time Uh, period? So it would have been between, it's when I first moved to LA and I was just like scrapping for any acting job. I think it was like 2011 to 2013, maybe, that I did that. Wow. Do you remember Valerie? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, that's crazy. Oh, yeah, the my casting goodness. director, right? She's the one that would review all the tapes and, and meet us when we got there. Yeah, with the beautiful blonde jazz hair, my yeah. son calls it. Yeah. <laughs> the curly, he's like, <laughs> jazz hair. <laughs> so you worked there when you were 16? Yep. What was your job over there? So, you know, you have the road that runs through the property. Yeah. The castle that you're talking about was on the south side of the property. Uh-huh. And then there were a bunch of different buildings on the north side of the property. You could see one from the highway that has a big, like, stained glass cross. Mm, I don't remember that. That was the um, staff training building. Like, that's where staff would go to do their two and a half hours a, a day of training. And I was responsible for being the Scientology equivalent of a teacher, which is referred to as a supervisor. Mm. So I would be, you know, in Scientology, when you're studying any uh, course or any doing any training, you have what's called a check sheet. And the check sheet is a list of steps like read this uh, policy, write an essay about this, do a clay demonstration of this concept, like where you model it in clay, get a checkout on this reference where somebody will be like, what's the definition of this? What's the definition of this? Show me, th- show me what how, what this concept is all about. Um, so I would be the supervisor would just make sure that people were moving through their check sheets, and that's how you do a course in Scientology. Okay. So I did that for five years. For the first five years that Whoa. I was at that property, from 1991 until 1996. 
And then in 1996 is when I was promoted up to Religious Technology Center, which is the highest ecclesiastical organization in Scientology that's run directly by David Miscavige himself. Wow. Yeah. And where is that? Is that in Clearwater? No, no, that's on that same property. Oh, yeah. Okay. At the time that I started working at that property, there were at least five different organizations that were kind of housed there, which is why it's referred to as the headquarters. Golden Era Productions is the organization I was working for originally. And that's the one that was making the movies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's where Valerie worked and so forth. But there were also several different management organizations and then Religious Technology Center also all at that property. So all the top executives in Scientology were housed at that property. Okay. You're moving up. I'm wondering... I know there is lots of levels to Scientology and you you pay to play basically and you move up the bridge, right? Yep. Because you had been in Scientology since you were a child and you'd been in these courses, were you further along than most people in that? Or like what level were you at at this point at 21? Yes. So by this time, I was what's called a class four auditor. Um, So on the training side of the great of the bridge to total freedom also referred to as the grade chart, it goes up to class 12. Like the highest level of auditor that you can be is a class 12. I was a class four, uh, which meant that I could, I could do all of the, um, they call it grades, grades auditing, like, you know, basically get someone up to the level of almost to the state of clear. That's just keep it simple. (laughs) And then of course, I had been doing executive and management training. And I was a trained supervisor. I was a what's called a cramming officer, which is like you correct people when they mess up on their posts, you say, Oh, you didn't apply this L. Ron Hubbard policy. So let's find out what you don't understand about this policy and then fix it so that you do a better job. Uh, That's what a cramming officer is. So as a cramming officer, and then in terms of the counseling side, by this point, I had reached the state of clear. So then I was moved up into Religious Technology Center. And um, for the first year, I was, da- I was sent down to Clearwater, Florida, where I was training to become a representative of Religious Technology Center. So what that means is that there were about 24 of us who were all in Religious Technology Center, and each of us were going to be sent to all the different organizations all over the world to be like the representative of David Miscavige at that organization. They referred to it as eyes and ears on the ground. The easiest concept of to understand what Religious Technology Center is and does is really to understand that it's essentially the highest police organization in Scientology. So it's also referred to as the inspector general network, you know, like inspector general. That's a, that's a term taken from the, the, the real world, but kind of switched a little bit. So it's like, you know, police, uh, you, you know, David Miscavige's eyes and ears on the ground, um, keeping an eye on everything, reporting to him ab- about matters that he might be concerned about. For example, if a Scientologist were to go call the police on another Scientologist committing a crime against them, that those kind of things would get reported to David Miscavige and Religious Technology Center directly because they are what's referred to as matters of RTC concern. 
Okay, that's a lot. Did I overwhelm you with information yet? (laughs) No, I'm just taking it all in. And I'm thinking that you must have felt pretty special to have this position. At this point, were you feeling okay with Scientology? Were you accepting it? Were you taking it in? Did it feel good to you to have such a high status? So that's that's a good and fair question. I had resigned myself to my fate and I just had decided, you know what? dive in and make the best of it, like yeah. I said earlier. So when I was working in Golden Era Productions, I saw a lot of things that, you know, many times we were staying up all night. And at some point in there, I thought, well, maybe if I push myself to get promoted up to Religious Technology Center, then maybe things will be better. Mm. Maybe it's just down here that's a miserable existence. And if I can work my way up the ranks, then it'll be better, obviously. Yeah, (laughs) it'll be wonderful. And hey, David Miscavige is obviously the most ethical Scientologist. So everything must be wonderful up there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know, I should have, I should have listened to myself. I shouldn't have been saying no, convincing I don't, myself of this ridiculous path. I don't blame you at all, because why would you? I mean, you yeah. are being taught all of these things. And so, of course, you would think that the people at the top are following these things, just like we thought the prophet of the church was never going to lie. And there he is on national television. And we're like, um, so I don't blame you at all for having these ideas. It makes total sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, I un- honestly was like, okay, gonna give it my all. I'm gonna, you know, commit to this path. Persistence on a given course. That's a Hubbard quote. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Means you gotta persist. And and I, I will grant you that I can be very stubborn and very persistent. I do acknowledge that completely. (laughs) So so when I went all in, I really fought and worked hard for that. So now I'm in Religious Technology Center and now all of a sudden major cracks uh, start to form because within the first week or two of being in Clearwater, Florida, um, now I was working very, very close with David Miscavige. And that was the first time that I personally witnessed him beating up uh, top executives mm. and um, yelling and screaming. And and all of a sudden I was like, oh no, what have I done? This is not what I thought this was going to be. But now I was in a position where I knew that the stakes were much higher. They weren't going to let me go. In fact, in later years during my time in Religious Technology Center, during the time that I was working very, very closely with Shelley Miscavige, um, she told me on numerous occasions, when you when you're in Religious Technology Center, you have forgone your right to leave. That was her exact statement. Like, And I believed her because I'd seen people from Religious Technology Center try to escape. And in fact, one woman was tracked all the way to South Africa and brought back. Ooh, what's going through your mind at that point? Because I know that you just said you're totally invested, but when you see this stuff happen, is there kind of like an oh shit moment where you realize this is your life now forever? Yeah, absolutely. It's weird when you say that. It's not that I had the thought that this is my life forever, because that would mean that I I think from my perspective, looking at it, just kind of evaluating, that would mean that I 
had chosen that. And I don't ever really feel that I had chosen it. So it's not that I thought this is going to be my life forever, but nor was I thinking I need to get the hell out of here. Mm -hmm. It was just kind of the day to day, like day to day, just make it through this day and then make it to the next day. That was the, um, the perspective more than, you know, a resignation to the rest of my life or not. Right. It was much more struggle to survive level, not the the high up, like, what am I doing here? Uh, Is this really what I wanted to be doing with my life? There's none of that when you're in that kind of a high control environment, because that, you know, inserting logic or uh, thinking for yourself or uh, even just having a critical thought was strictly forbidden. Mm -hmm. And by that point, you know, having immersed myself so thoroughly into the doctrine and belief of Scientology it's very much smoke and mirrors. So I wouldn't let myself think I want to leave because that would mean that I've committed crimes and I'm a bad person and I don't want to be here. And, you know, and then that leads to, oh, but what about my husband? And if I talk to him about that, then, then that's, that's, definitely a suppressive act. And I'm definitely a suppressive person. You're not allowed to talk to somebody about leaving that there's a whole policy for that called leaving and leaves. It is a suppressive act to talk about with anybody wanting to leave. What? (laughs) Yes. Wow. They really just have it all dialed in to where people are too afraid to even think about it. That is wild to me. Okay. You said that you started having these cracks when you were married, but we haven't really talked about how you met and is dating even allowed and what are the policies around that? Yes, good question. So, so I arrived to the, the gold, this headquarters in, um, September 1991. And my husband, my to be husband, Mark was already working there. He at the time worked in the manufacturing area, um, doing quality control of cassette tapes at mm. that time. <laughs> There's no dating in the C organization. In fact, uh, the policy is that there's not, you're not even allowed to engage in heavy petting, as they call it. Like oh. no, anything beyond a light kiss. We have that term too. <laughs> oh, you do? Yeah. And all of us are like, what does that even mean? <laughs> right. Like, I know. I. Uh, so uh, this is funny that you say that because as a teenager who'd been growing up in a, in, in, you know, a high control environment yeah. and reading heavy petting, I go, so of course, like a good Scientologist, I go to the dictionary because I want to know, like, what am I going to get in really big trouble for? Or what can I get away with? Yeah. And there's no, there's no heavy petting. It's not like it tells you, you can't find a list. Like, yeah, that's what I was looking for. I was like, please, Explain please this. define the rules of engagement. If, if you're going to expect a teenager to not do something uh-huh. with a with a you know whatever <laughs> <laughs> honestly originally i had these lofty thoughts like oh i'm going to marry some big high up executive you know whatever our paths somewhat crossed by accident i mean i knew who he was we worked on a proper uh, you know a headquarters together there but at that point there were probably around a thousand staff there mark always jokes he was like yeah it was slim pickings it's like whoever's there <laughs> Mark. Pick, pick one and, and move along. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of a funny accident. We had uh, a few hours off for New Year's and we lived in these apartments um, in 
in town, like 20 minutes drive from the property, you know, and still in dorm setup. So I lived in a, an apartment with, I think, five other women. One of them was my age. Anyway, my friend uh, wanted to go see a movie, but we weren't allowed to go by ourselves. We had to have somebody to go with us. And so we went to an apartment where somebody that she had a crush on and was interested in lived and Mark answered the door <laughs> and he was like, Oh, I'll go to the movie with you. And we were like, okay, great. Anyway, that was the first time we kind of spent any time together, which was kind of funny because we were so tired from having been in LA working at the New Year's event the night before that we honestly all slept through the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Uh, but anyway, so it kind of like, now I knew who he was. And, um, and by May of that year, we agreed to, you know, whatever you agree. You can't, I can't really say there's just, you know, it's not like you can go out to the movies or go for dinner or, you know, so we did, we did a, a live a few months back uh, with Aaron on growing up in Scientology. Uh -huh. And it was just the, we were dying laughing because we, we talked about like our first date was um, driving to an event in LA on a bus. <laughs> Oh, anyway, man. you have to watch that clip. It is yeah. pretty funny. I don't think I've laughed so hard in my whole life <laughs> where, where, where that went to. But <laughs> needless to say, pretty much right away, I, I mean, I loved Mark's sense of humor. I loved his rebelliousness. And it was so refreshing to me from having just grown up in that from such a young age and be being honestly a, a rule follower and, and actually being terrified of breaking the rules. Mm -hmm. Mark was always kind of like the pushing the boundaries kind of a guy. And he started to make me take things less seriously. He, he has an amazing sense of humor. And so we, we decided to get married from like first ride on the bus until, um, we got married was, uh, maybe about, 10 weeks. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So starting in May and we got married by mid-August. In fact, we're a week away from our 31st anniversary. <gasps> Congrats. <laughs> That's amazing. What does a Scientology wedding look like? Are there rules? Yes. So there are, um, I think, a couple of different ceremonies. Mark and I were married at Celebrity Center in oh, Los wow. Angeles. <laughs> yeah, we had to drive to uh, Vegas, which his dad, my to be father in law, drove us to Vegas the night before we got our wedding license. And we had to do that because I was 17. Oh. And in California, if you want to get married under the age of 18, I think it is you have to get um, blood drawn for some reason, and you have to see a psychologist. Oh, and I would have drawn the blood, but the psychologist was off the list for me as a Sea Org member right. and as a Scientologist. <laughs> right. Anyway, so yeah, we drove to Vegas, uh, got our wedding license, and then the ceremony was in the pavilion there. And it was called the double ring ceremony. So they hold the minister holds up uh, the two rings and tells us to envision the ARC triangle in the rings. That's affinity, reality, and communication, which if you have all of those present, you can accomplish understanding. It's, it's weird. There's not really the concept of love in Scientology. It's affinity. Mm. Affinity is a feeling of love or liking for someone. It's just a different word. Like a Scientologist would say, Oh, I have so much affinity for you. Really? <laughs> 
Yeah. So wait, did you not say you loved each other? Was that not a thing? Uh, no, not. I mean, yes, we said I love you. And of course, we say it, it all the time now. Yeah. It's not that Scientologists don't say that. It's just that there's like all these layers of semantics that I feel in my mind now, looking back on it, were kind of layers of control mm-hmm. and isolation. You know, like, <laughs> you know, I can, I can remember growing up, my mom would say to me all the time, don't cut my calm. So somebody listening would be like, what the heck was that? And what does that mean? Well, cut, cut my communication. Again, you get so deep in the weeds, but if I say, it's like saying, don't interrupt me. Uh huh. Basically, but it's Scientology speak. Got it. Or they'd say, don't be banky as a child. Don't be banky means your bank is your reactive bank or your reactive mind. And it's the source of any mis, you know, mis emotion, negative feelings, negative reactions. And that's what you handle when you achieve the state of clear. You now no longer have a reactive mind or a reactive mm. bank. But so as a child is like, don't be banky, meaning, you know, don't throw a fit. Don't, don't act out. It's a different language that controls you and convinces you and reinforces the belief system of Scientology with every single word. Yeah. I was realizing this recently. Blown for good. The reason Mark named his book that in Scientology, if you're blown, it means you, it's an unauthorized departure. Um, and, if you blow, it's because you've committed crimes and therefore you want, you need to get yourself away. But still, it's all about what you did, not anything else. Mm-hmm. So no matter what the reason, if you blow or leave with, without authorization, it's your fault. Yeah. Mark actually started posting originally anonymously back in 2006 as blown for good. Like mm. he's blown for good. He's not coming back. Um, anyway, I like that little side note. I don't know where I was going with all that, but it was, you know, it, my main point is the, the controlling use of the language to reinforce and just keep you in it. Yeah. And we were talking about how it's kind of a loveless ceremony. And I'm, I know that you're not allowed to feel what they perceive to be negative emotions like sadness or anger. I imagine that would be really difficult in a marriage because there's always going to be things where you clash and you need to work stuff out. How did you handle that within your marriage if you're not allowed to have those feelings? Yeah, you don't really, it's not really accurate to say it's a marriage because first of all, yes, you sleep in the same bed, but like we were on completely different schedules. We were on completely different meal times. We rarely ever saw each other. So there wasn't a whole lot of time for us to have to work through relationship issues. It was more just like, you know, a struggle to even see each other. Mm-hmm. Like more, we had, you know, they, the organization provided us with these Nextel phone radios to communicate with other people on the property. Um, I make that clear because not that we had phones, but we had a, a means to communicate to each other. So even though I was in a higher organization, I had a, a radio and I could radio Mark. So we even had a higher level sometimes of communication than other couples did Mm. who didn't have those. But like Mark would 
we had this running joke. I, like I would radio him and say, Hey, what time are you going? And he's like, Oh, I got a date tonight. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's like with Lionel, you know, all night long. He's <laughs> 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 staying up all night. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so funny. Yeah. Mark's, Mark's humor is honestly a, probably at least 80% of why our marriage survived all oh. of that craziness. <laughs> That's really sweet, actually. I'm surprised that they were supportive of you getting married at such a young age, especially if they don't allow children in the Sea Org. And I'm wondering, were you aware of your mom's situation? I know that you know now that they kind of gave her that ultimatum, like you're the last person to be able to have a baby. But were you aware of that situation? And did you want kids? How were you feeling about that? Yeah, no, I always wanted kids. Um, but the thing is, is when you're 16, you know, and speaking for myself, like when I joined the C organization, I wasn't married. I wasn't an adult, mm -hmm. you know, so I kind of just thought, well, I'll figure it out. Or I didn't even have that much of a thought. It was just path of least resistance. You know, you don't, um, I, I mean, I couldn't tell you what would be happening at the end of the year, let alone, the rest of my life or a billion years yeah. as I was required to commit to, you know, you just, I don't know, it was just kind of a take it by day thing. So prior to getting to the headquarters, I believed that there was a policy where Sea Org member, a member of the Sea Organization, if they became pregnant, would be sent to um, a lower level organization not in the C organization to have the baby. And then when the ba when the child was then six years old, they would go back. Mm -hmm. I somewhat thought that that was a thing, though I'd never seen it happen. I just didn't realize until I got to the headquarters that the, the level at which they would frankly pummel women repeat, you know, just like emotionally heavy manual labor, et cetera, et cetera, if somebody became pregnant mm. until they reached their breaking point and agreed to terminate and and were oh. forced to do so. We had a lawsuit where, and that was one of the causes of action, um, was that I was forced to do that twice. Um, oh no. And in that lawsuit, I made a list of every, of every single woman that I personally knew had been forced to do that. Mm -hmm. And my list was 70 women long. Some of those had 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 been forced to do it up to six times. No. Oh my gosh, that's awful. It is. It's absolutely um and and on this isolated property, they have complete control over you. So, if you put up a fight, quite literally, uh, you have nowhere to go. It's not like you can jump the fence and run for miles to, to where. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, and I knew that, you know, part of that, the, the steps that would get enacted when a woman, a woman would become pregnant would be to separate them from their husband. Like I said, put them on heavy manual labor, put them on interrogation and ethics handlings to make them realize that, um, they're a bad person, mm. they can't leave, and just literally break them. Wow, I can't even imagine. That is so awful that they would be forced to do yeah. that. Was there anyone who tried to hide that they were pregnant? 
Yes, there were there were a few people that did. Um, one one lady in in specific that I remember, she hid it until she was six months Whoa. pregnant, and they they then forced her to, which was absolutely criminal. Wait, they forced her to abort a six month baby? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. No. I know. It's, and and so Megan Shields was a Scientologist doctor in Los Angeles, and she made a huge stink about that, reporting it all the way up to David Miscavige that this was criminal. It was, you know, unethical, for all intents and purposes, murder. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, my my experience was that um, it was 1994. I was not yet in Religious Technology Center. But um, I was working at that headquarters, and and I found out I was pregnant. And I literally was absolutely terrified, mm. devastated, heartbroken, like just everything. Like it was seriously one of the worst thing, worst moments of my life because I was in this massive conflict that I wanted nothing more, and yet I knew that they that I was not going to be allowed to get out of there. I had nowhere to go. Yeah. Like talk about complete desperation. They would literally just destroy my marriage to my husband. So what should have been joyful celebration moment was complete terrifying fear. And the isolation was such that it's not like I could just go to the drugstore and find out by myself what was going on. I had to go to the medical person and say, um, I need to buy a pregnancy test. Oh. And so I had to pay for it and, um, you know, of my, out of my $46. So now the cat's out of the bag already. And so she's going to, she sat there while I took the test. So it's not like I could keep it a secret. Yeah. Let's see, 94, I was 19 at this point. I had been married for two years. So instantly it was like, so we're going to take you to the Planned Parenthood clinic. This is what's going to happen. And I was just besides myself. And But again, the fear and the control and the leverage that they have over you is so complete. Mm -hmm. There's no way out. Mm -hmm. um, as, mu as much as I wanted to sit there and scream, you know, the they, they just instantly kick into, this is what's going to happen next. Uh, you're going to get escorted here. You're going to talk to these people. You're going to tell them that this is what you've decided. So they had me escorted there by this six foot Australian guy who was my boss, basically. And he sat in the waiting room and every, every ounce of my being was like, wanted to scream. Yeah. And, you know, they, they about near broke me at river at the planned parenthood when they were like, where's your husband? And I'm just like, Oh, come on. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. That is not okay. And I know that you know that. It's just, I know. wow, I can't even imagine. Yeah, it was, you know, I don't know. It did break me, but then I go, my view now is what breaks, you, it breaks and it gets, <laughs> grows back stronger, you know? Yeah. It's what a big part of why I do what I do. And, um, you know, I just, nobody should have to go through that. It's just not. Uh, so, yeah. It's sometimes a struggle and I have to, you know, try to remember to grant myself some forgiveness and. Of course. Uh, 
Yeah. Of course, because that was not your fault and you had no choice and you were a victim of something awful and horrible. And I hope you never yeah. blame yourself for that, even though I'm sure it's really difficult. Yeah, I I do. I'll, I'll be honest. But, you know, I, I also I've many people have said very kind things. And, you know, I know obviously I can't turn back time and I go everything happens for a reason. And from my experiences, I've now very broadly spoken on this topic mm. and I've made it much, much harder for them to continue that practice. I Good. I know they still do, but I also know of many people that were able to leave who previously would have been forced to do the same thing. So I yeah. take, that gives me some peace that, you know, however many babies have been born because of my pain, then I take that as a blessing. <laughs> oh, wow. It's amazing that you're able to do that and help so many people. Oh, just my heart goes out to you. I'm just having all the feels right now. <laughs> I'm trying not to lose it myself because I just, I. It's okay. <laughs> I'm just so sorry. So maybe let's move on then to when you got to the Religious Technology yeah. Center. And what were the things you had mentioned? This is where you started to notice breaks and cracks in what was going on in your life. So what were those? things? What was the catalyst that started to get you to think a little bit more clearly? Yeah, well, first, so first of all, now I was working directly with David Miscavige, the, the leader of Scientology, and seeing him physically abuse top executives on a regular basis uh, was, it was shocking. You know, you just go, wow, I did not think that this kind of thing went on mm -hmm. in that Scientology mindset, you go, well, this is off policy. This is not right. <laughs> you sure. know, still in the mindset, but, um, but also in your heart, you start to go, well, these people are here to trying to clear the planet. They're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to help. And yet this is happening. The cognitive dissonance in Scientology that kicks in is, well, that person did something wrong. They're not performing their job. So therefore they're pulling it in. Like Scientology does not believe that there's such a thing as a victim. That's a negative thing. If you're a victim, it means you're succumbing, you're tending towards death. That's the opposite of what is expected of a Scientologist, according to L. Ron Hubbard. But it becomes harder and harder and harder to rationalize and shut it out and just not not start to go, wow, what is going on here? Mm -hmm. But again, being in such an isolated compound, again, what what am I, what am I going to do? Jump the fence and run through the desert for miles and miles and miles to the nearest payphone for which I have no money? Right. <laughs> you know, like let's just talk logistics for a moment. It was not like um, it's not like I had a car or you know any family connections outside of Scientology. I had family outside outside of Scientology, but I hadn't talked to them by this point in like 25 years. Mm. So why would I expect that I had anywhere to go? So again, you just feel completely trapped and completely helpless to do anything. And then on top of that, the the indoctrination just constantly is washing over you going, no, 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 just, you know, do your job get it done. These people, they're getting what they deserve. Um, David Miscavige is putting their ethics in or whatever. It's Hubbard policy too. There are 
pieces of it that he would say, well, that's what I was doing, which is, for example, one of the policies is you make the punishments too gruesome to be faced and enforce them as a means of uh, obtaining compliance. So in, in other words, if somebody's not doing their job or not acting as is expected of them, then they're supposed to be given very, very harsh punishments that are too gruesome to be faced. Mm. And there were many of those. So yeah, I spent a year in Clearwater, Florida, then I was brought back to the headquarters. And that's where I was attending sometimes daily meetings that David Miscavige would hold with all the management executives. So I got to see up close and personal, um, consistent verbal and physical abuse of some really good people, frankly. And by this point, I was just like, completely just trying to survive and not become the target of his wrath myself. And of course, Mark was, by this point, Mark was an executive in Golden Era Productions. Um, so he would very often Sometimes he'd be doing great, but sometimes he'd also be in a lot of trouble. So mm. actually over a period of about five years, David Miscavige was constantly pressuring me to divorce Mark specifically and personally. Wow. And yeah, like one, there was a time in 2000 um, when I was in a meeting with David Miscavige, Shelley Miscavige, and three other executives in Religious Technology Center. And um, he said to me, so did you hear about the new personnel policy I'm implementing for Religious Technology Center? And I said, yes, sir. He's like, what is it? And I said, well, it's that you can only be married to someone else who's also in Religious Technology oh. Center. So he knew full well, uh, like this applies to me because Mark was in a lower organization than me. So essentially to my face, he's saying, if you don't divorce your husband, I'm kicking you out. What? Yeah. How are you reacting right now? Was this one of your final straws? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just, um, again, like I said, I, so that, so this was in 2000. By the time I finally escaped was January 2005. Mm. So it was, you know, getting there. But, but again, you know, factor this in with Shelly Miscavige telling me, oh, you've forgotten the right to leave, you know, all of this, like if the thought even crossed my mind, um, which, you know, I can't even say it was so much as a direct thought that I allowed myself to have. But I do remember that there were so many times that I had nightmares about trying to escape. Mm. And I should tell you that I'm very much a... um a dream problem solver or a problem solver dreamer. Like I have actually, <laughs> this is going to sound crazy, completely crazy, but we were trying to help somebody get somebody out of Scientology. And I had a dream of how to do it and we did it and it worked. That's amazing. I love that so much. I love that so much. Somebody recently was like, you should really put that to work. I yeah. know somebody who like lays out their problems and then goes to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, so I would have nightmares about trying to escape. And that was, that was the closest manifestation 
that I would allow myself to have that I wanted to get out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then, I wouldn't say to anybody that I had those dreams, like even when I was, you know, getting ca- counseling or interrogated or whatever, I was I was like, in my head, I'm like, it was just a dream. Right. It's theoretical. It's not even a real thing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it doesn't you know, count. Because... Yeah, because I would be like, have you th- have you had thoughts of leaving? That would be an inter- an example of an, a question you'd be interrogated about. Yeah, have you thought about leaving? And I'm like, well, it's a dream. It doesn't really it doesn't count yeah. as a thought, right? Doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so by now, at this time, so in 2000, now is number three. Like uh, my position was internal exec. I reported to Marty Rathbun and to Shelley Miscavige. They were my direct bosses. So I was, I felt that I had gotten to a, you know, an irreversible spot where I didn't know how I could ever get out. I didn't mm-hmm. know how they'd ever let me leave. Um, they would pursue me and bring me back, which as, as they eventually did do, though they failed to bring me back eventually. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I just didn't feel like I had any options. And even more so, the challenge was my husband. Yeah. It's hard enough for one person to get out, out of there. For two people to get out, that's pretty much unheard of. Like, um, statistically, the amount of couples that have made it out of there is, you know, like Mark and I are, uh, are a statistical anomaly mm. in that scenario. Did they make you divorce him or how did you get around that? They were pressuring me to divorce him, you know, every few months. Um, and I just, ignored it. Frankly, mm. I non-complied and I, uh, but I was very, very worried about it. And um, at one point, Mark accidentally found out that this was in the works. Mm-hmm. Shelly Miscavige handed Mark some internal papers when she had to run out from a meeting. And he, of course, being the rebel that he is, looked <laughs> through them and it was a whole listing of everyone in Religious Technology Center. And it said where they were going to be moved to. And by my name, it said I was going to be moved to the next organization down. And by the reason, it said Mark. Oh, geez. And from that point forward, he kept, he would always ask me, like, are you going to divorce me? And he never, but he told me why. I was like, no, I'm not. I'm not. Please stop saying that. Please stop asking me that. It was, you know, really upsetting because, uh, frankly, because I was under so much pressure that I had considered crumbling to the pressure, yeah. which made it even more upsetting when he was like, are you going to divorce me? Mm. <laughs> I just flat out refused. And then I ended up in the hole as a result of that. You did. Mm-hmm. Can you tell everybody what that means? Yep. So it was these double wide trailers on the property where all the management executives were essentially being, uh, they were locked up, not allowed to leave. To my knowledge, there's probably still some version of that in play today, probably not in those same buildings because there's been so many people talk about it. Like Mike Rinder was mm-hmm. there for two years after I left. Oh. It was bad when I was there, but it got significantly worse, like absolutely worse. Everyone that was in that, the hole was essentially being accused of non-performing and being having counterintention to David Miscavige and um, not wanting Scientology to survive or prevail or whatever. 
Um, and so the reason I was put there is because I refused to divorce Mark. And then I was not allowed to go home anymore. I was sleeping on the floor of my office in a sleeping bag. Anyway, it was, it was a complete nightmare. And, and by that point, you know, in that time period was when in my mind, I was like, well, I was in religious technology center where I had forgotten my right to leave. And now because I refused to divorce my husband, now I'm in bit even bigger trouble, but I'm not in religious technology center anymore. Mm. So perhaps, <laughs> you know, just started to be like, but still the biggest problem was my husband and, and I didn't, I didn't trust myself to talk with him about it. Oh, because he would have to write a knowledge report on you. Yes. And vice versa, you know. Right. Um, and we were getting regularly interrogated. So I didn't want to kind of like out yourself unintentionally spill the beans yeah. either. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a hot mess. And so it culminated in Mark being falsely accused of embezzling funds from Scientology. I mean, even that was just so ridiculous. He, he was supposed to purchase equipment to get something done that David Miscavige wanted done. There were no funds to do that. So he couldn't get it done. So he was getting in trouble. He found out that they were throwing away these very, um, old projectors in Los Angeles. And he was like, stop. They can be sold on eBay for a lot of money. And he got written approval to sell those to make the money that he needed to buy the equipment to make the systems that David Miscavige needed. Mm -hmm. um, but he didn't uh, include and document that there were going to be eBay fees deducted from those sales. So those eBay fees are the basis of their alleged, uh, you know, accusation that he em embezzled money. Oh, wow. So he was getting interrogated. They told him they were going to send him to the Rehabil Rehabilitation Project Force in Los Angeles, which meant he would never see me again. And the next day, he took off on his motorcycle. This was early January 2005 now. Um, he had tried to call me. He'd radioed me that night, like around four o'clock in the morning and said, are you coming home? And I said, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm working. I'm going to try and come home just to take a shower. I never made it home. So, you know, I can speculate on how I would have reacted. And, and honestly, it's neither here nor there because he took off. Yeah. <laughs> but the sad part that just epitomizes what that life was like is that there was a security guard sitting right outside our, the house that we lived on, which was right on the border of the, headquarters property. So it was outside the perimeter, but right there, there was a camera on top of our house. And so he, Mark drove off on his motorcycle and right away there was a security guard following him immediately. Um, he didn't make it, he probably made it about a mile, mile and a half and, and they ran him off the road, <gasps> but a passerby saw this happen and called 911 wow. and Thank goodness, uh, Riverside County Sheriff's Office responded and they, you know, for all that, um, I wish law enforcement would do more. I have personally told Riverside County Sheriff's Office I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for them responding to that mm -hmm. call and understanding that my husband was trying to escape from that property and helping him to do so. Mm -hmm. There was a, a woman in charge of the responding officers that we found out later 
adamantly insisted a report be filed, even though Mark was not pressing charges. He just wanted to get the heck out of there. And the sole reason she insisted that report be written is because she could see that he was married to me and that I was still there. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And then yeah. what happened? <laughs> I'm like on the edge of my seat. I'm like, and then? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then? <laughs> so he was run off the road and um, the police responded and they they put the pieces together really quickly. Mark was not saying anything negative because we're just trying to get the heck out of there. We're not yeah. trying to make this a big war against Scientology. And so the police ended ended up escorting him to U-Haul. He called his dad. Um, his dad answered the phone. His dad was the sweetest person. He, for the remain, for the whole time that we were at that property, um, he had a 1-800 number set up for Mark and his oh. sister Stephanie so that if they ever needed to call him for anything, they could do it. Mm. It was just unbelievable. And he, and he was there and he answered and he was the reason Mark, you know, was able to get out. And then, but then of course I was still there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah. So the next three weeks were absolutely the worst three weeks of my life. That's what I'm starting my, my, I, what I wrote for the beginning part of my book is explaining the absolute hell I went through in those three weeks. Um, I mean, I was already in a mess. You know, I was, I had lost so much weight. It was pathetic. I couldn't, by that point, I couldn't stop losing weight. Mm -hmm. I was like 95 pounds. I'm 5'7". Oh my gosh. In fact, at one point during those three weeks in the middle of the night, David Miscavige uh, came down for, was walking through the hole. And um, he looked at me and he was like, you're sick. And I'm like, yes, sir. <laughs> Yeah, and <laughs> like, and in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm sick of this place. Yeah, <laughs> but um, it was still a little bit after that, but not not that long after that 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 I man did manage to escape. I I figured out a very elaborate way to be able to contact Mark on the down low, which was really really difficult. But I essentially got my sister who was a, a, just a civilian Scientologist in Los Angeles. She was a college student. And I called her and I just made up this whole story about how Mark was on a special project because I was not allowed to tell them that he had escaped. Mm. So I said he was on a special project and that just tell him that I miss him and to please call me at 6 a.m. the next day. Because, yeah, that sounds totally not suspicious, right? <laughs> <laughs> but she did and he called and, um, and I just told him, I, I, I cannot do this. I'm literally going to die if I stay here. And, and by that point, I had actually thoroughly reached that certainty. I was not going to make it if I stayed there. Mm -hmm. And so then it was just, um, it just, <laughs> then it was a matter of figuring out the complicated logistics of how to get out of there because I knew that I could not, I was n in no state for physical confrontation. Like, not only was I skin and bones, like 25 pounds less or 20 pounds less than I weigh right now, but I just like mentally, I couldn't take confrontation. I knew I would fail because, you know, let's face it. I had been born into this high control group and it's the only thing I'd ever known. And so not only would they be 
saying all the right things to make my mind keep me there, but also just physically, I wouldn't be able to get away. Mm -hmm. So long story short, I went to this eye doctor appointment. I had a security escort with me. I had to ditch her and and go to the a cab that I'd called early that morning under an assumed name of Barbara Smith will be etched in. So stupid. It's not even a creative name. I mean, come on. <laughs> Barbara Smith. Like, wow, Clara, that was genius. <laughs> it worked though. So yeah, it did. It's kind of funny, but, um, yeah. So I got, got in the cab at the Walmart before I was even out of the parking lot the security escort who just dropped me off at the front while she went to go park the car. Um, that's how I did her. I just, I was like, Oh, it's my appointment right now. So just let me out right now. I'm going to be mm. late. And she fell for it. So I walked into the Walmart, walked right across quick as I could without running. Cause in my mind, again, I was like, I can't run. Cause yeah. then, you know, you have this like playing out in your head, like, there's going to be people chasing after me, like, mm -hmm. where'd she go? And they're, they're like, like you see in the movies, oh, she ran that way. And yeah. they're like, no, no, don't run. <laughs> Walk fast. Yeah, so I'm in the cab. Mark had, we had agreed that he would call me at a certain time, by which point I should be in the cab, and that he would tell me what to do from there. Because I had ultimately come to the conclusion I couldn't do this without his help from the outside. And that's why I figured out very complicated means of getting in touch with him. So anyway, um, yeah, the security person radioed me and I was like, Oh, I'm just in the bathroom. I'll be right there. And meanwhile, I'm thinking, man, this cab driver must think, must think I'm a real piece of work. Oh no. <laughs> but he, we kept driving. We made it to the Riverside bus station and I called Mark from a payphone there and he, it was like these, all these complicated instructions. He was like, turn on your phone and call this company in Times Square, New York, because then they'll think you're heading to New York. Uh -huh. But then turn off your phone and do not under any circumstances, turn it back on yeah. no matter what you do. So I was like, okay, so I made it to Barstow. In Barstow, I was supposed to call him from a payphone, but that that's where I panicked because, you know, I haven't been out in the real world. I'm just like this... uh Grew up in a cult. I have no idea how the world works. Yeah. So I went to the payphone and it didn't accept coins. It only accepted calling cards. Oh my gosh. And I just shut down. I was like, I don't know what to do. I mean, it's so stupid in retrospect, but it does point to the mindset that I was in. Like, I can't ask someone for a calling card. That's going to be like asking somebody what planet you're on. Yeah. They're going to think I'm Starman. And when the PIs come, they'll be like, oh, yeah, she went that way again. <laughs> you know, this is what's, this is what's going through my head. So anyway, I turned my phone on and I called Mark and he was like, what? What are you doing? Now they're going to know. I'm like, okay, well, I panicked and da, da, da. And of course, so he gives me the ticket number. That's what I, I really needed to call him for to get from... Barstow, California to Kansas City, Missouri on a Greyhound bus. So they wouldn't be able to intercept me. There's no airline tickets. You know, there's, it was supposed to be a flawless plan. But because I turned the phone on, um, they now, they could ping it off a cell tower. So they would know. And they're very, very good at figuring out like where the person is and then what transport is heading where. And, you know, there, it's just a matter of like, checking off the boxes like okay there's a bus going from here to here she's going to be obviously going to where mark is um so yeah 
by the time I got to Vegas, you know, 5 p.m., it was January, so it was already dark outside. I knew I had to get off the bus because it was a bus change. So I absolutely had to get off the bus. I waited until almost everybody was off the bus. I was completely famished. Mm -hmm. All I was thinking about was, oh, I could go get a cheeseburger at McDonald's. I haven't eaten anything in days. I get off the bus, open the door to the bus station, and boom, they're there right in front of me to take me back. Oh, no. Uh, um, so there were two people in the bus station, top executive I'd worked with for 14 years, Greg Wilhair, who was like David Biscavige's right-hand man, and um, Sharon Johnston, who was my boss at the time. And then there were two other people in the parking lot. I was just like, now what do I do? Walked into the bus station. In retrospect, it should have been... A you know, I don't know, people go, well, why didn't you just call 911? But again, you have to understand like 30 years of programming that 911 is the last thing a Scientologist is ever going to do. That's the enemy. Yeah. Do not call the authorities ever under any circumstances. So, you know, I just set my purse down on the floor, sat down on it, and I just decided in my mind, I was just going to plug my ears and if they tried to physically haul me out of there, which was a very real possibility in my mind, that I would just scream and hopefully somebody might do something. Not the most elaborate planning, but it was on the spot. So meanwhile, they're talking to me. They're like telling me that my whole family is going to be ruined. They're, I'm destroying their lives. Then they get Mark on the phone and they tell him that they caught me and I'm not coming and Mark is losing his mind. Anyway... <laughs> They threatened to follow me on the bus, all kinds of things. Anyway, so that went on for about 20, 30 minutes. At this point, honestly, they'd already followed me across state lines right. from California to Nevada, chasing me, basically, not even basically, that's what they were doing. They mm -hmm. were hunting me down to bring me back, told my husband they caught me and they're bringing me back. So I just somehow m made it through that that whole thing and got on the bus. And the first thing I did, the second I sat down on the bus is turned on my phone. Cause obviously it doesn't well, matter they now. Know where I am now. Yeah. <laughs> so I called Mark and he was like, Oh my God, what's happened? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So the rest is history. Here I am today. <laughs> Lordy Claire, that is straight out of a movie. I am just, it's so much that they yeah. would be willing to go to those lengths. And I don't think a lot of people know about this stuff, that yeah. they are literally trapped. It is so intense. And wow, I'm just so happy that you're willing to speak out and spread awareness about this because honestly, I didn't know what was going on. Like I said, I did acting gigs for them because I didn't know any better yes. until I saw aftermath and i was like what the hell this is crazy how come nobody knows about this right and so it's just a lot i'm so happy you escaped oh my gosh i can't even <laughs> I imagine too. like that that moment when you must have reunited with mark it just was probably fireworks and just the relief how did you feel when you finally yes. got there oh it was it was absolutely um amazing you know it was the, it was what you feel like when you're, it's the first day of the rest of your life yeah. after living through 30 years of hell by that point. Yes. I was just so grateful that I succeeded and that I was with my husband, who I love, and that somehow, despite all those years of hell, 
we could start over. It was yeah. just absolutely incredible. And that that's that's what drives my passion for my work with the Aftermath Foundation. Um I've been serving as the treasurer for since its formation in December 2017 and and recently was voted in as president. Um it's just so so important that people have resources and have mm-hmm. a safety net and um, have people they can talk to who understand what they've been through and, you know, all of that that we never had. It was mm-hmm. for me when I escaped, it was lit- quite literally like being told, you know what? Uh, see that cliff right there? Just go run, toddle along, jump off the cliff. I promise marks at the bottom. Things are going to be okay. Yeah. We promise. Just, just trust me. Ooh. <laughs> I bet the mental deconstruction was so incredibly difficult because of the way that they changed all of your vocabulary and and made you think in a very specific way and made you act in a very specific way. It was probably from what I know about my own deconstruction process that was not nearly as difficult. It was probably so liberating, but also so confusing and tiring and just hard to unwind all of that that programming. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely a, a a significant process that you have to be willing to really work through. Um, It's interesting that, you know, in obviously in the years since we escaped and just starting over and kind of starting to speak out and tell people the truth about Scientology, we, we met this one person that told us that there was this whole study done about how long it takes to undo that high, mm. high control group programming and indoctrination. And this study showed that, um, you know, it's definitely always a process, but Scientology is like three times longer. I'm sure. <laughs> Which made a lot of sense to me. I was like, yeah, you know, you, you have to, it, it is layers of the onion and you really have to pause to go, why am I thinking this? Is this because this is how I feel or is this because this is how I was told to feel? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and you have to be really careful to not kind of dig yourself back into it, but walk yourself out of it. And education is key. Uh, you know, I've, I've read many books and Jehovah's Witness, for example, one time showed up on our front door in Burbank, California. <laughs> and unfortunately for them, I was alone with my two kids. Mm. Um, Mark was out of town. I was used to being bombarded by private investigators when such was the case. They would very specifically catch me alone with my young kids. Um, I hadn't had any coffee yet. And so <laughs> I opened the door and they were like, started their pitch. And I was like, I was in a cult for 30 years and I just slammed the door in their face. I'm like, sorry, that wasn't my smoothest, <laughs> most gracious conversation ever. But no, the answer is no. Yeah. Yeah. They were trying to recruit you, a Jehovah's Witness trying to recruit you. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's tough. I still have a hard time with that. I I am at the point now because I'm in this space and I do this work that if someone tries to recruit me into a religion, I'm like, I'm set. Thank you. (laughs) I'm good. Wow. I'm just trying to imagine what it must have been like when you're able to have a real, I I don't, not real, but like a worldly marriage again, like have some sort of normalcy in your lives and having kids. And that must have been quite the transition to kind of figure all of that out together. 
Yes, completely. You know, it's been a path of building a new life, recovering, recognizing trauma, advocacy for other victims. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, um, I just have such conviction that anybody, anybody can leave. Anybody mm -hmm. can start over. Anyone can take control of their life at any moment. You just have to be, you just have to know that you're doing the right thing for yourself and have that strength and just knowledge that it's going to be okay. It's going to sort itself out, you know, commit to your path, but, but do commit to it because you, uh, to me, I, I'm just so grateful that I didn't fail myself in my moment of need, you know, because I really easily could have. Yeah, it takes a lot of strength and bravery and courage and self-advocacy to put your foot down and say no. And I think that's one yes. of the biggest things that people have to learn, including myself when leaving high demand religions or cults, is that you have to learn how to say no to people and set boundaries because for so long, you've been a yes man, whatever you need. Okay, you want me to do this? I'll do that. You, this is the new doctrine. Okay, that's how I'm going to live now. And you're just used to giving away your power. And so you have to be able to say no this is what I want. This is what I need. These are my boundaries. If you don't like it, you can go elsewhere. Yes. It's so hard to do that. It takes a long time. I'm still working on it. I'm still working on being I able to too. set boundaries. I it's totally hard. am. Yeah, it's I hard. totally am. And I would also add to that, it's really important to have those moments where you go, no, I am not okay. Yeah. I am not okay. What I lived through was not okay. And I need to recover from that and I need to help other people recover from that. Mm -hmm. You know, that's to be part of it too. Cause in Scientology, it's all like, Oh, well, you've handled that and you're not, you know, no. <laughs> yeah. I had this moment when, um, when we were in the middle of our lawsuit where one day I was driving my kids to the, you know, to the preschool. And I had been going through very intense deposition with Scientology, which was very triggering. It was like mm -hmm. going back to your abuser, essentially. And I just started bawling my eyes out. And that moment, in that moment, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I can't do this. I don't want my kids to see I'm upset. And, and so I was just like, you know what, to hell with it. I am going to see a therapist and I will decide if this helps me or doesn't help me. Yeah. Yes, Scientology says it's evil, but that is my choice. Yeah. I can decide. And so I took that power back and it was so, it was so amazing because then I was talking to the therapist and she's like, well, what, why were you upset? And I was like, well, I didn't want my kids to see that I was upset. And she's like, but why not? I'm like, well, cause then they're going to be sad. And she's like, you know, it's okay for your kids to know that you have emotions. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's a good teaching moment because then they'll be like, you know what? I'm having a tough day, but I'm going to be okay. And it's good for kids. It's healthy for kids to learn that. It's not the end of the world that I'm crying or that I'm upset about something because I will be better in just a little bit, you know? Anyway, it was so funny because my, my, my three-year-old, like a few days after we had this wonderful conversation, after I'd had this therapy, my son says, mom, I think dad, dad's having a rough day. And I'm like, you know what? You're right, but he's going to be fine. <laughs> oh, that's just, so you know. sweet. And it was, it was important for me to work through that and just realize, you know, there are going to be tough days. It's, I've got, I have to do the work as they say, you know, and I, still getting there too. It's a, it's a heck of a process. Yeah. 
And how are you doing now? What is your consciousness, your awareness? What makes you happy? I know the advocacy work and you can talk about that and, and please do. Is there anything else yes. that makes you light up and, and feel at peace? Yes, absolutely. I hike up a mountain every day. Ah. Um, <laughs> if you saw the 60 Minutes Australia piece that, that Mark and I did, it's actually shown in there. This 200 steps up a mountain. From the top, you can see Pikes Peak, Sleeping Indian, their mountain ranges. And so cool. They are, oh my gosh. It is. I, I go there and I just take 30 minutes for myself. And I enjoy that. I get so much peace from it. It's like my own form of meditation, prayer, whatever it is. It's my own special flavor because yeah. I don't like associating things with labels. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it just, I, that's where I do all my problem solving outside of my dreams. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I work through things and I just love it so much. And, um, yeah, you know, we have vacations with our kids and with our family of choice. You know, yeah. we, we have very specifically chosen people that love us unconditionally. I'm so grateful that we've been able to build that for our kids. And, you know, our kids know that they're not actually grandma or they're not actually whatever, but it doesn't matter because we, tell our kids, you know, what What most matters is unconditional love, that these are people that accept you for what you are. Mm -hmm. They love you and they support you. And um, they're pretty, pretty damn good at it too. If you, wouldn't you agree? I say that to my kids and they're like, oh yeah, absolutely. They're Aww. amazing. <laughs> That's so. so sweet. How old are they now? So I have three boys. They're 17, 15 and 10. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so my husband and I are both, um, have worked with the Aftermath Foundation, like I said, since December 2017 or January 2018 when it was formed. Um, and we help people escape and start their lives over again. And it's just so rewarding. You know, like I've taught a 45 year old woman how to drive. <laughs> Wow. At the same time that I was teaching my teenager to drive. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Yeah, no, it is amazing to be able to do that. It's, I, I'm just, it's such a blessing to be able to help other people and know the position that they're in and know that we can absolutely honestly tell them it's going to be okay. Your life is your own. You have, you have the power to take back your, your path. And, um, and so we recently put out a documentary called The Story of Serge Obolensky. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw that, but it's an incredibly powerful story about someone who grew up in Scientology. His life was completely destroyed to the point he ended up homeless on Hollywood Boulevard for 10 years. Mm. My kids and I and Mark all just attended his high school graduation in June mm. in Los Angeles, which was incredible. I couldn't stop crying. It was like, you know, that moment when you just go, wow, this is just so powerful. Yeah, yeah, I was able to watch part of that and I haven't yet finished it. But just from the beginning, I think I got about halfway through. It's such a beautiful story of perseverance and people stepping up to the plate to help this man and get him back on track. And I just love that you're able to do that through the foundation. And if people want to donate to the foundation or um, become a supporter or a volunteer, how can they do that? Yes. So the website is theaftermathfoundation.org. So the, the word the. Um, 
And on there is the um, email contact for a volunteer. Uh, so it's volunteer at the aftermathfoundation.org is the email to contact to sign up as a volunteer. We have an incredible database of just the most kind, um, amazing volunteers. And we're incredibly grateful for that. Um, and then, yeah, we're, we're actually about to re relaunch the website with a complete mm. makeover. So that will be coming soon, but yes, that that's where there's more information. Awesome. Well, I am just so happy that you're able to do that. And I totally support the work that you guys are doing. And please let me know if there's any way that I can help you guys as well. And I know we were going to talk about the Masterson trial, but we've already gone so long. So maybe that's <laughs> another episode. I don't sure. know. Let's Claire, do it. Yes. I could just talk to you all day. Um, this has been so <laughs> <Likewise>. great. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. It's been incredible to learn more about you because I've seen you from afar for so long. And so knowing more of your story is just a privilege. And so thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time too. Yeah. And let's drop all of your handles. So Blown for Good is YouTube. And then give us anything else that you want to plug. Yes, blownforgood.com is our website where uh, Mark's book is available for purchase. Um, the aftermathfoundation.org is the foundation website. The spshop.com is where we have Mike Rinder bobbleheads and SP mm -hmm. bracelets and all the proceeds from those benefit the Aftermath Foundation. And yeah, I think that's that's good. Amazing. Before we go, I just need your Linda Listen moment, sassy statement or inspirational statement for our viewers. Oh, that's a good one now. So we did we did the one the one before. Uh-huh. Uh, Linda Listen. Always believe in yourself. You got this. You can do this. You can do very hard things. Don't ever give up on yourself. You're your best advocate. Amen. I love it. So good. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing. It's been awesome. Do you have any final thoughts before we go? No, just again, thank you so much for everything you do. I would like to pose one question to you. You don't have to answer right away. Okay. I would love to know if there's a book or something that for you helped you to just open up your mind, like the baby <sighs> steps to uh, receiving truth. That is such a good question. And I would have to say it was not one specific thing. It was learning as much as I could about everything. So especially learning about the ins and outs of Mormonism helped me understand that it's just made up. <laughs> yes. And once I was able to deconstruct the religious side of things, it gave me permission to be free in thought and to not feel guilt and shame anymore. And it helped me understand that sometimes these groups are created and they are just made to control and manipulate people and, of course, bring love. I mean, I don't think they all have malicious intent. I think they they mean well, mostly. Yes. But ultimately, there's some harm there. And so once I I was able to recognize and kind of separate those things, I was able to let myself be free. And I think just living my life to my fullest, my fullest in the way that makes me happy and following my own intuition 
and really just reconnecting with myself. And I'm an advocate for plant medicine. So like psilocybin or um, like gummies or something, nothing crazy. But and also I have to say it's not like all of the time. It's maybe once a year. But I really give that time to myself to do some introspection and see what I want to work on to see what my myself is trying to tell me and maybe I'm too busy or too, I don't know, in the the spokes of daily life to really catch on to. And so I think that's been really helpful for me. The introspection, education is power, and just learning to let go of all of that stuff in the past that was holding me down. Nice. That's a great answer. Thank you Thanks. so, so much. And, <laughs> and yes, I, I agree with a lot of that, especially the willingness to just let go and know yeah. it's going to be okay. And find your finding your own path. We we each mm-hmm. have incredible life force. We just need to put that life force in the right direction and 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 use it to live our best life. You be the good, right? Yeah. In the words of Gandhi. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think if I were to sum all of that down, it would just be letting go. Letting go of the past and moving forward in the way that makes you feel happy and fulfilled and that doesn't cause harm to others. Yes. So awesome. yeah, thanks for that little the little moment. Just like, <laughs> hmm, what has helped me? That was fun. Um, yes. Well, this has been awesome. And guys, if you're watching, thank you so much for sticking out to the end. Let us know if you got this far. We really appreciate your support. You can support the podcast by liking, subscribing, and commenting some words of encouragement for Claire. And if you want to support even further, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash cults to consciousness. Our newest patrons, Becca and Carol, thank you so much for your support. We are going to be doing a live Q&A patrons only in the next one or two weeks. So if you want to be part of that, go ahead over to Patreon. And if you like this episode, I will put Claire's other episode here along with another one that you'll want to check out. And until next time, follow your highest excitement, be conscious and be well. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with our visibility. You can also find me on social media at Colts to Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts to Consciousness at gmail.com.